Good. Well, we are, as Judge just read in Titus chapter 1 today, um, we said a couple of weeks back that we're taking a, a short break from our series in the New Testament Gospel of Luke, where we have been over the last couple of months, walking our way through Luke's Gospel, uh, and we're, we're taking a break. The next three Sundays, we're going to work our way through Titus, and then in the autumn, we're going to spend some time in Daniel in the Old Testament, and then we'll get back into Luke early on next year. Now, to give you a brief bit of background to what we're reading today, my notes have disappeared. You know, this happened a few, some of you who are with us regularly, this happened a few weeks ago, and my notes just like vanished. It's happened again, so, but that's fine. <laughs> so, hopefully they'll reload. Um, this letter was written by a man named Paul, who was a leader, a key leader in the early church, and he wrote it to a friend of his, uh, a man called Titus, who was a younger leader who most likely had come to faith in Jesus through the witness of Paul and through the ministry of Paul. And then Titus had gone with Paul on one of his missionary journeys as Paul traveled around to different places, telling people the good news about Jesus. And Titus had gone along with him on one of these journeys to Crete. And a number of people on the island of Crete came to faith in Jesus. And Paul moved on, but he left Titus behind and, and commissioned Titus to work with these first Christians on Crete and to disciple these brand new Christians to establish churches there on Crete. And this letter was written back into that context to Titus to encourage him, but also to help Titus to establish healthy church communities on Crete. Now, these Christians that Paul is writing to along with Titus were in a difficult spot on Crete. Crete, first century, was not an easy place to be a Christian. The prevailing culture there was incredibly and intensely secular and hostile towards the Christian message. Their view of God on Crete was Zeus, the Greek god, and Zeus was renowned for being deceptive. He was a liar. He was a womanizer. He was a man who was all about his own pleasure and glory and would use whatever means he could to get that. This was the God figure that they worshipped and revered on Crete and actually sought to emulate, to live like. And Paul's desire in writing into that context and to these Christians, to this fledgling church community, was that actually they would be established as a strong and healthy church in the midst of this hostile culture. He was eager that these Christians would live the way God had called them to and designed them to, and that as they did, it would make a material difference to those around them in Crete, that as they lived in accordance with God's word for, for God's glory, the people on Crete who had worshipped Zeus would go, wow, there is something different about these Christians. There is something remarkable and attractive and 
brilliant about this Christian community, about this church, and we need to find out what it is. And as a result of the life and witness of this church on Crete, other people would come to find life and freedom in Jesus Christ. That was the idea, and that's why Paul wrote to Titus, to go, Titus, this is what you need to do in order to establish a healthy church community in Crete. And so this letter, and this is why I've chosen it for the summer, gives us something of a blueprint for how we could establish a healthy church community here that would make a difference to those around us, that would shine as light in the darkness, that would be an attractive community, that people, as they see us, our individual lives, but also our corporate family life as a church, would look on and go, wow, we need to find out more about Jesus. If that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, we need to find out more about following Jesus. And that's why we're looking at this today. And and I also chose this letter because, in many ways, we're in a similar place to those Christians on Crete in the first century. See, we've begun to gather a group of Christians here and called it Foundation Church. We're making some progress. But just like that early church in Crete, we've got some work to do. We're not yet established. We haven't got a leadership team formally. We don't have elders. We're in the process of doing that. We're also here in increasingly secular 21st century Wokingham. And my desire, just like Paul's for the church in Crete, is that instead of just going along with culture, we would live distinct from it in a way that is truly attractive and would cause people to consider Christ for themselves. So we're going to dig in today to chapter 1 and see what Paul had to say to Titus and how that might apply to us in 21st century Wokingham. If you do have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull it out and read along as we go through. If not, the words will be on the screen. So from Titus 1, verse 1 through to 4, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul here introduces himself at the start of the letter. It's customary for him to begin his letters in much this way. And we could spend easily all of our time just unpacking those four verses. Easily. There's so much there, but, but we don't have time today. We're going to focus on the next chunk of the passage. But just very quickly, right up front, Paul is clear in introducing himself of, of what he's all about. And actually what we as Christians should be aiming to live for. He says he's very clear. He is a servant of God. Paul isn't living for himself or for his own agenda, his own comfort, his own priorities. He says, no, everything I am, everything I have is given over to serving God for his glory 
to, to live as he intended, as he calls. So different to the culture of Crete, so different to Zeus, who the Cretans sought to emulate. And then in this short introductory statement, Paul also slips in the first steps for establishing a healthy church. And the first is this, he highlights the message that he preached in Crete, and he reminds them of it in this letter, this message that Christ came to pay the price for our sins at the cross, so that if we trust in him, we might be forgiven, we could receive eternal life and come into relationship with God. This message known as the gospel, when received, causes people out of gratitude to want to live like Paul did, to say we're servants of God, to live for God's glory. See, you notice in these first verses, he talks about himself as a servant, then he talks about the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, and then he says, which accords with godliness or which leads to godliness, that when you understand, when you live in the good of what Jesus has done for you, it leads you into godliness, it leads you into life of obedience, it leads you into wanting to honour God And then he says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He reminds the Christians. He reminds us. He reminds those who trust in Jesus that their hope is secure, that their hope is not just for this life, but it's an eternal one. And it's guaranteed because God has promised it. And unlike Zeus, who was a liar and a womanizer, God does not lie. God, who never lies, has promised it. And so we can be sure. Paul deliberately in this introduction contrasts Zeus and the God of the Bible. Contrasts Zeus, who was a liar and a womanizer, and the Cretans loved him for it. He was a God who can't be trusted. A God who lies can't be trusted, can they? If your God is renowned for being a liar, like, where does that leave you? (laughs) Like, nothing they say can be trusted, and they certainly shouldn't be emulated. And yet, Paul is careful to say here, but Jesus is not like Zeus. God is not like Zeus. He never lies, and so he can be trusted, and he should be imitated. His word can be relied upon. And so, in this introductory paragraph, Paul lets us know, actually, that the the first step in establishing a healthy church is to ensure that you're building on the foundation of the trustworthiness of God's word, that you're building on the foundation of the gospel, you're building on a foundation of what God says and who God is and what God has done and nothing else. The foundation isn't what some person has said or what some person has done. The foundation isn't your best guess or your best efforts. The foundation on which a healthy church must be established is the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word and the finished work of Jesus that secures for Christians an eternal inheritance. Step one in establishing a healthy church. Ensure you build on the foundation of the gospel. Anything other than that, and your church won't be healthy. 
That's all there is to it. And then step two comes next. As Paul in verse 5 says to Titus, or reminds Titus, why he left him at Crete. He says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. When Paul left Crete with a group of Christians there, he said that's, a church hasn't been established yet. There's, there's a group of Christians there, and that's good, but, but everything hasn't been put in order. It's not there yet. There's work to be done, and so he left Titus to do that work, and a key part of that, step two of establishing a healthy church, is to appoint elders or overseers, to appoint godly leaders. If you want a healthy church, you've got to have healthy leaders. Now, you might be thinking, if that's so critical, if that's so important, if you can't have a healthy church without healthy leaders, why didn't Paul appoint elders before he left Crete? Like, like why not do that before going? And why haven't we appointed any elders at Foundation Church yet? If it's so important. For a healthy church, like why not? Why not? It'd be like the first thing you do when you start gathering. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Well, see, elsewhere in the New Testament, in one of Paul's letters to another man named Timothy, he instructs him when talking about appointing elders in the church not to be hasty in appointing elders, not to rush it, not to hurry it. The elders also shouldn't be new Christians. Well. Everyone in Crete was a new Christian when Paul left, apart from Titus. So he instantly rules them all out. <laughs> That's why Paul didn't do it. But that isn't why we didn't do it here. Because some of the people who've been with us since we started gathering were certainly not new Christians. But we didn't appoint elders day one. Why else? Well, Paul also writes in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5... These words, 1 Timothy 5, 2, he says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. What he's saying in that, and one of the reasons that you're not hasty in appointing someone to eldership, is that you can't really get to know someone overnight. And as you'll see in the verses we're going to read together in a moment, the character we're looking for in elders when we appoint them needs to be observed over a period of time. You simply can't observe it in a handful of days or weeks or or even a couple of months. You need time to observe the character to really get to know someone. If some people's sin is upfront and obvious, like straight away, you're like, there's no way you could serve as an elder in the church. Like you just, it's obvious. Some people who've only just come to faith, it would be inappropriate to appoint them as an elder in the church because there's no provenness yet to their walk with God and how would they lead people where they haven't been. But Titus now has been discipling Christians on Crete for a couple of years, probably at this point. He's been there some time. He knows them well. And so from these believers on Crete, Titus is going to select and appoint some elders at Paul's encouragement. And over this first bit of time gathering as Foundation Church, it's it's probably taken a bit longer than we'd imagined at first because 
COVID's made it harder to build some of those relationships when you're all spread and you don't get to see how people engage with one another. You don't get to observe their lives, see how they interact with their family. You don't get to see those things. So it's it's taken longer. But we've been getting to know people. And uh, just as Titus was going to appoint elders in Crete, we are at a point we shared with you a number of weeks ago that we're beginning a process of wanting to appoint some elders here at Foundation Church. In September, we're going to let you know who they are. We've begun kind of gathering a a group of guys as potential elders, and we're going to let you know in September who those men are. And we'll be inviting your feedback and observations of them then over the course of a year. But your observations, I want them to be in line with the verses we read today. Because this is the biblical outline for what an elder should be and do, what an elder's life looks like. And so that's the other reason we've chosen to go through Titus over the summer, as we seek to establish a healthy church here in Wokingham for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. We need to appoint elders. We've got to have healthy leaders in place. And this passage is so instructive for us, because as we go through this process... We don't have to guess what we're looking for, right? It's not a lottery. It's not just kind of like, I don't know, they seem like a good guy. They'll do. <laughs> like, we have in Scripture, in the kindness of God, he lays out for us, this is what you should be looking for in healthy church leaders. This is who you should be appointing. Now, you'll notice I've already said men a couple of times as I've talked about it. And, and when we shared with you, a few weeks ago that we were intending on appointing elders, I said at that time that we would be appointing some men as elders. And you'll see as we go through the verses we read today, the, the language and the qualifications is, is written about men. It, it's not ambiguous. It, it's not a gender-neutral set of qualifications. It, it's not ambiguous language. And in our culture, this is increasingly unpopular. And I want to acknowledge that. It's not a very popular view to hold or to share. But our conviction is that the consistent teaching of Scripture actually is that God created men and women in his image, equal in value, equal in status, but with differing roles to play, differing complementary roles, that when each plays their part... The picture created, the the harmony created is beautiful and glorifying to God. It's not one of sameness, but of difference that when each plays their part together in unity is stunning. When we live as God designed, everyone benefits. That's our conviction. And within that design that we find in Scripture, men are commissioned by God to be sacrificial, to love and serve their families sacrificially. They're designed to to lead their families and to lead in the church in such a way that isn't about furthering themselves, that isn't about the Zeus, who the Cretans worshipped, but is instead about preferring the needs of those under their care. That is about creating an environment where 
those around them flourish and feel secure. And actually, whether they like it or not, God holds men to account for how they do this or don't do it. It's a pattern in Scripture that goes right back to Genesis. We've not got time to get into everything today, but very quickly, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, even though it was Eve who took the fruit first, it was Adam who God came to and held to account for what they had done. God came and primarily held Adam responsible. Now, Adam tried, as men have done ever since, tried to deflect the blame. He tried to shirk the responsibility and pin it on Eve. It, it, like, it wasn't me, it was that woman who you gave me. <laughs> he tried to palm off the responsibility, first onto Eve and then actually onto God. It's the woman who you gave me. She did it. But God wouldn't allow him to do that. Adam was responsible. God came to him because he had failed in his responsibility to lead Eve in obeying God. He had failed in his responsibility to lead her in obeying God. And so instead of flourishing as God designed, everything went wrong. See, biblically, being a man isn't about macho posturing. It's not about like, like I'm the man and like the way culture portrays manhood like must kill eat must like that's not the way bible portrays manhood it's not the way god portrays manhood instead manhood is about taking responsibility to create an environment where others flourish in obedience to god that's what biblical manhood is about it's about taking the responsibility and owning the responsibility God has given you to create an environment in which others flourish and feel secure and live in obedience to God. In the same way, God has designed for some suitably qualified men, as we're reading this passage, to serve as elders in the church. They're made responsible by God for the lives of those in their church. They're not there to, to be domineering or to exert their will or to have everything their way. That's not what eldership is about. Biblically, elders are men who are responsible for the flourishing and security of those in the church. And God will hold them to account for the way they do that. And tragically, the history of the church is sadly littered with people who've misunderstood that, who've thought that leading was about exerting authority, about having things their way, about dictating how things should be done. And when it comes to judgment, it's going to be a scary place to be for people who've done that, for men who've abused their position in leadership in the church who've abused their position of authority because God will hold them to account for the way they've loved and led in the church. He'll hold them to account for the responsibility they had to create a secure environment for others to flourish. So instead of quashing people as they have done, they're going to be judged severely. Now, there's loads, loads more I could say about it, and in time we will do. Before we actually come to appointing elders, we're going to do a mini-series um, actually on the subject and on particularly the roles of men and women in the church and what we believe the Bible teaches about that. But for now, 
we need to move on with the passage. But if you are, if you want to read more, or if you want to talk more, I'm happy to talk. Um, or if you're someone who likes to read, the two books I'd recommend getting hold of that will just help you understand uh, what we believe the Bible teaches on this subject. There's one called God's Good Design by a lady called Claire Smith. It's really good. It's a really helpful, practical book. She talks from her own experience about having been um, a non-Christian, an atheist, a feminist who thought anyone who said anything about a role in the church or anywhere else being reserved for men was just the most outrageous, anathema thing you could possibly say. And how as she became a Christian and as she opened the Bible for herself and she saw it modelled in a healthy church environment, she went, hey, <laughs> I think this is actually what God designed for people. And so she writes and she breaks down the key biblical passages as she does that. Another one, uh, which is slightly shorter but maybe a little bit more technical, um, is a book called Men and Women in the Church by a guy called Kevin DeYoung. Um, again, I think it's very helpful. He works through the key biblical texts when it comes to the roles of men and women in the church and just unpacks those and helps us understand them in a very simple way, slightly more technical maybe than Claire Smith's book, but very good. So with that bit, kind of over that bump, in his kindness, God's given us a description of what we are to look for when we assess men for eldership. Uh, and over this next 12 months, as we go through this process, we're going to stick to it. <laughs> we're going to stick to this brief because, sadly, it's far too easy to place too much emphasis on someone's giftedness or leadership ability or magnetic personality and far, far too little on the qualifications we find in Scripture. And when we fall into that trap, the results are invariably disastrous. Church history, ancient and modern, is littered with examples of incredibly gifted people, incredibly impressive leaders who gathered crowds, who wowed auditoriums full of people, who could speak incredibly convincingly, but who did not meet the qualifications laid out in Scripture and in time, shipwrecked their lives and ruined the faith of those who'd gathered to them. Tyrants and dictators get to where they are because they're gifted leaders. Persuasive, manipulative, charismatic, powerful people. They look good, they sound good. People are drawn to them because of their gifting. But they abuse their position because their character is appalling because they're more like Zeus than Jesus. This is the opposite of biblical leadership. It's the opposite of what we're going to read about together today. Leaders in the church are not and must not be chosen based on their giftedness or charisma. Leaders in the church aren't chosen because they're great orators or because they have an amazing magnetic personality that people just love to be around. They're chosen on their character, chosen on the quality of their lives, chosen on their humility and their desire to serve others, chosen actually on whether those around them, those closest to them, their family, are thriving and flourishing under their leadership. 
The picture the Bible gives and Paul lays out for us in these verses is the opposite to Zeus. It's like the anti-Zeus, the selfish liar and womanizer. When men behave like Zeus, they deserve to be distrusted and held at arm's length. And most people, when you speak to them, their problem with the idea of male eldership in the church is sadly, tragically, that they've met men like Zeus. People who are powerful and look good and sound good. But they're in it for selfish gain. So this is a heads up as we start this year of assessing men for eldership. I'm not interested, actually, if they're your kind of person or not. I'm actually not interested if you think they could be a bit more or less lively or whether you think they're a great speaker or not or whether they're an engaging person to be around. I'm not actually really interested in those things. And, and when we ask you to invite you to comment on guys for eldership, if you come to me with an observation about you know, how someone is when they're at the front speaking or something like that, then I, I'm probably not really going to pay a great deal of attention. That's not to completely shelve or dismiss giftedness. I believe God gifts people. But what I want us to look at is these character qualifications. This is where we must root what we're doing in scripture not in subjective do i like them or not do they impress me or not we don't get to choose the criteria for leaders in the church god does that for us and gives it to us in his words and so paul begins what an elder should look like from verse six he says if anyone is above reproach He gets straight in with this overarching qualification. If anyone is above reproach, if we can skip back one slide, or if we somehow missed it somewhere. Back one. Oh dear. Oh no, it's previous slide. Back, the other way, the other way, the other way. One more back. It's not on there. That's worrying, isn't it? Well, anyway, the start of verse 6 says, and if you've got your Bible, you can check that I'm telling the truth. If anyone is above reproach, this overarching qualification that's going to be then unpacked and expanded in the rest of these verses is that an elder is to be above reproach or blameless. And we can read that and go, wow, blameless. Like, do they have to be like completely without sin? Like the perfect human? (laughs) Now, this isn't actually a call to sinless perfection. Because if it were, the church wouldn't have any leaders and would never have had any leaders other than Jesus because he is the only one who lived without sin. No one but Jesus would be qualified. What it's saying is that there should be such a consistency of godly character, such a consistency of being repentant and dealing with sin, of not living a hypocritical life. There should be no skeletons in the closet. No surprises. No one should be able to surprise you with something about an elder in your church if they're godly elders. Hey, do you know what he does at the weekends? (laughs) There should be no surprises. No one inside or outside the church should be able to point at something consistent in an elder's 
life and say, hang on, you say this on a Sunday, but when you're at work on a Monday morning, your life is very different. No one should be able to point at an elder in the church and say, hang on, you say this on a Sunday, but on a Friday night, how does that match up? In light of that, above reproach, Paul goes on. He says he should be the husband of one wife and his children believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The qualifications for elders begin in the home. Should be the husband of one wife. The way he loves and leads his family is going to be a great indicator for how he'll lead the church. If he can't be trusted at home, Paul is effectively saying here, don't let him anywhere near leadership in the church. If he's not doing a good job with his family, don't let him near leadership in the church. The first of these family qualifications, he says he should be the husband of one wife. Literally, he should be a one-woman man. That's not to say that all elders have to be married. And it also doesn't mean that if a man was married and his wife has died and he's remarried, that would make him a two-woman man and therefore he's disqualified. That's not what Paul's talking about. This is about faithfulness. Is that if he is married, is he faithful to his wife? And, And if he's unmarried, is he faithful in the way he lives? Is he sexually pure or is he immoral in that regard? It's about faithfulness, infidelity, affairs, both physical and emotional. Viewing pornography. These things disqualify a man from eldership. We're going to talk about those things with guys this year as we assess them. We're going to get into that. What do you do with your eyes? (laughs) What are you looking at? How do you relate to other women other than your wife? Are you faithful to your wife? We're going to ask wives. Do you feel loved and affirmed by your husband? Is he faithful to you? If he's not faithful to his wife, if he's not loving and leading her sacrificially, if he's not honoring her and loving her in a life-giving way, if he's putting his needs and desires before her needs, then he can't be trusted in the church. That's what Paul's saying. He goes on about his children. His children are believers. They're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The word for children here isn't like grown-up children who have left the house uh, and are kind of living under their own authority, as it were. They've established their own household. the, The word is for younger children who are living under the care of their father. They're living under his roof and under his care. Now, on the whole, you've probably observed this, children in early years tend to believe what their parents believe. Yeah? The mum and dad say this is true. By and large, children will go along with that. If parents evidence a relationship with God around the home, if they pray, if they open the Bible, if they clearly maintain a relationship with God, 
then their children will pick up on that and follow along with that. The behavior of our children should reflect the fact that parents are intentionally teaching and modeling faith to them. It should also display that they're exerting loving discipline in the home rather than allowing their children to be wild and disobedient and do whatever they please. If we have genuine faith and relationship with God, then that will be borne out in family life. Born out and how we spend our time together as a family, what we give our time and energy to, what we talk about, what we watch. These family measures are so critical in assessing an elder because the role that he's called to in the home is very much like the role an elder is called to in the local church, in the household of God. It's a fathering role. Just as the call in the family is to take responsibility for the spiritual and physical growth and well-being of their family, the, the same is true in the church. So Paul continues. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. There's nothing unique about these qualifications for an elder outside of what actually all Christians should be aspiring to. All Christians are called to this way of living. These are characteristics of all mature Christians. This should be said, should be able to be said of all mature Christians that they're, they're not arrogant, they're humble, that they're, they're not quick-tempered, that they have the fruit of the Spirit that comes out in patience in their life, that they're not a drunkard, but instead they're filled with the Spirit of God, that they're not violent or looking for greedy gain. What, what can they benefit from other people? How can they exploit others for their own ends rather than generously giving and serving? These are characteristics that all mature Christians should exhibit. And the reason they're here is because elders are supposed to be examples to the church. They're supposed to model what it looks like. Elders are not, as I've already said, perfect or infallible. They're going to stumble and fall and be in need of forgiveness and grace. But by and large, their lives ought to be exemplary. Their lives ought to be lived in such a way that gives glory to God and benefits those around them. You, you should be able to say of an elder to, to a non-Christian, follow that man around for the next 24 hours and you'll see what a Christian looks like. Follow that man around for the next 24 hours. You should be able to say of an elder, hide CCTV in his house and observe family life for the next 24 hours and you'll see what a Christian looks like. You should be able to say that. That's the level of consistency that doesn't mean they're never going to make a mistake in it. doesn't mean they're never going to need forgiveness. But there should be a consistency there. Because we're going to see in a minute that elders are supposed to teach people, to instruct people in sound doctrine and in the hope of the gospel. And that teaching is going to be rendered utterly powerless 
completely toothless. It will just be undermined thoroughly if an elder's life doesn't match up to what he teaches. If an elder's life doesn't demonstrate the power of Christ to free us from bondage to sin, how can anyone take seriously the words that come out of his mouth when he declares that that could be true for them? (laughs) Jesus Christ paid the price at the cross to deal with your sin and shame once and for all, that you might know forgiveness, that you might know freedom, that you could walk free from those things that hold you captive, that you could live the way God designed you to live for his glory. How can he say that if his life demonstrates something to the contrary, if he himself is living in bondage to sin? Remember, elders don't need to live in complete sinless perfection or even pretend to. But if they're enslaved to an area of sin, if they're held captive to a particular pattern or habitual sin, then they are surely not qualified to serve as elders in the church. We've got to be clear on that. Carry on in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught to Scripture, to the Gospel, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He's got to know what the Word of God says. (laughs) And he's got to hold fast to it, not be swayed here, there, or anywhere by the winds of cultural change. He's got to be able to teach it too. The only qualification for elders that isn't found elsewhere in the Bible for all Christians is that he's able to teach. But all of the other things that we find about elders, like faithful to their wives, like every Christian man should be faithful to their wife. These, these things are things that all Christians are called to. The only exception is that he should be able to teach. Here, able to give instruction. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, we find Paul again writing about the qualification for elders. He says he should be able to teach. Elders need to know and hold firm to the truth of the gospel. They must understand the key teachings of God's word. They don't have to know everything. They don't have to be experts in theology. But they need to know enough that they can help others in the church grow to maturity in faith. That when someone's struggling with something in their lives, when they're struggling with sin or going through a hard time, that an elder is able to sit with them and comfort them, but also point them to the hope of God that we find in Scripture. They've got to be able to do that. If they can't do that, then they can't be an elder. They also need to be ready and able to rebuke and correct those who contradict God's Word. That's what Paul says here. Yeah, Give instruction, sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. Elders can't just gloss over false teaching or pretend it doesn't exist. Elders can't just kind of nod and smile along when someone says something that's going to lead them into error and going to impact their life, potentially impact their eternity. That's not what an elder does. An elder brings correction for the good of the person they're speaking to. A loving leader will put your eternal destination before your present comfort. You need to to hear that, right? 
A loving leader will put your eternal destination before your present comfort. That might mean they say something that makes you feel uncomfortable in the moment or challenges you or kind of makes you squirm a little bit, like, oh, dear. Like Craig said to me earlier, and I was a bit... He said, me and Rachel were just saying in the car, like, how, um, like how we scared when you preach. I'm like, oh, I don't... And he then clarified a bit and said, not like, you know... Not scared of you, but there's a, there's a kind of appropriate thing that there's a challenge when we read God's word. Elders need to be able to appropriately challenge people with the word of God when people are wandering away from the truth. Not because they want to get one over on people, but because they love them. Because they understand that they want to bring people back to God's best for them so that they might flourish. We need men when we look for elders who have the conviction, courage, and kindness to call out error. It's so critical we have leaders like this in the church. And, and Paul goes on to explain why now. Having given us this outline for an, an elder needs to meet these qualifications, needs to be a man like this. He needs to be prepared to, to bring teaching and where necessary rebuke. Paul goes on to say this is why. We read this from verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. I'll explain that in a minute. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. It's vital we have elders in the church who hold fast to truth and pass it on to others, because there are many who will seek to lead people astray, both inside and outside the church. Elders need to help the church stand up against the prevailing winds of culture. This is difficult and costly. But they must not shy away from it. See, the anti-gospel messages of culture are all around us. Like, it is impossible to live in this world without inhaling the air of anti-gospel. You can't do it. And so we need people who will bring us back and remind us of the truth of what Christ has done for us, who will bring us back and remind us of the hope we have in him. Tim Keller says this, says the gospel truth is radically opposed to the assumptions of the world. But since we live in the world, we have embraced many of the world's assumptions. Whether you know it or not, I want to tell you, you have embraced many of the world's assumptions because you're surrounded by them, you're bombarded by them, you inhale them every day in what you read and what you watch and the conversations you have. Back to Keller. He says, Christian living is therefore a continual realignment process. It's one of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we spend time reading the Bible together on a Sunday. And it's why elders must be able to bring people back to the truth of Scripture. And in context, Paul references one group in particular. Some of you, when I said it, kind of raised an eyebrow. The circumcision party. These were some Jewish legalists who had got involved with the early church and they were trying to convince people, they were teaching them and impressing on these young Christians, on this early fledgling church, that salvation, true salvation, requires faith in Jesus and living under Jewish ceremonial laws and practices. 
like circumcision and abstaining from certain foods and making sure you go through the ritual washings. They were adding works to what Christ has done for us. They're saying, faith in Jesus is not enough. You need to do all these things too if you're going to be accepted by God. That's rubbish. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not the gospel. It leads people to a place of despair and condemnation. If they fail or if they manage to do it, it leads them to a place of pride and arrogance, believing that they've somehow earned their salvation because they're such a really, really good person. Elders need to be able to rebuke people who bring false teaching like this into the church. Now, I would hazard a guess that none of you are living under the uh, teaching that you need to be circumcised if you're a man and you need to abstain from certain unclean foods, no pork, uh, and that you need to go through ceremonial washing in order to make yourself acceptable to God. I would guess. We'll get to where it rubs for us in a minute. But Paul goes on first. There's one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said this, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's Sounds harsh, doesn't it? And then he carries on. This testimony is true. Think, steady on, Paul. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul, we've just got to say, is not making a racist statement about the Cretans. Paul is not anti-Cretan. That's not what's going on. He's not tarring all Cretans with the same brush. He quotes a guy called Epimenides, who was a Cretan poet and writer, he takes his words and he says, in the case of these people who are leading those in the church astray, and in the case of those who get sucked up and go along with it, what Epimenides wrote is true. <laughs> it's like, in the case of those who go along with this false teaching, what Epimenides said is right. It's accurate. It's an accurate statement. And the way to address that, Paul says, is that they need sound teaching. He says, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Paul is saying they need correcting in their error, not to get one over on them, or to be like, ha you got it wrong, we got it right. You're just like Epimenides said. It's out of love, that they might be sound in the faith that they may come back to trusting in Jesus, to an eternity secure with him. The purpose of the rebuke is restoration. It isn't condemnation or one-upmanship. It's that they might come to repentance. Whether you serve as an elder or a leader in any capacity in the church or not, or whether you are a believer, there will be times when you need to speak to people when they've been deceived about what they believe. This is the heart you've got to do it in. If you just try and get one over on someone, like, <laughs> how could you believe that? Yeah, you're stupid. If you try and one-up, like, nah, I'm right, you're wrong, that's not the right attitude. We do it out of love, that they might come, that they might come to a sound faith in Jesus. And Paul quickly counters the teaching of these legalists then. So he models what it means, what it looks like. He brings some rebuke, some correction. He says this from 
It's to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their hearts and minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It's harsh, but what Paul's saying is this. These people are teaching that if you want to be pure, then you need to not touch this or do this or eat this. Or have this bit of skin. That's what they're teaching. But that's not what makes you pure, Paul says. Because if you're in Christ, if your trust is in him, if your hope is in him, if you found forgiveness in him, then you're pure. Because of what he's done. And eating foods or not eating foods, or following rituals or not following rituals, or going through purification or having some skin cut off, won't make you pure or impure. That's why he says, to the pure, all things are pure. To those who are in Christ, you can, you can eat those things, you can do those things, you can wash or not wash. It doesn't change your standing before God. But to the impure, to those outside of Christ, to those who are trying to get there on their own, nothing you can do. No washing, no good works, no cutting skin off. None of those things are going to make you right before God. The people Paul's addressing were all about the appearance of godliness, but without true godliness that comes from faith in Christ. It was outside in. They were teaching you, do these things, and then God accepts you. Paul says, no, 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 no. The gospel, the grace of God is that because of what Christ has done, we are made holy. We are made righteous. His righteousness is given to us. And out of gratitude for what he has done, we live to please him we live to honor him and to glorify him it's inside out it's an overflow of what he's done not an attempt to try and attain something now ceremonial washing and food laws might not be an issue for you but there are plenty of false gospels out there people add works to the gospel might not be washing or food silly example but it's out there You need to stop smoking before God will accept you. Or you need to stop swearing before God will accept you. Clean up your language and then God might accept you. You need to do this or you do that or do the other in order to win God's approval. Don't you believe it? It's rubbish. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing you could do to make yourself acceptable to God. The only way into right relationship with him is through the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. People try taking away from the gospel too, which is false. They say things like, all that matters is loving people and being authentically you and encouraging them to be authentically them because that's how God made them and God's love. It sounds really nice, doesn't it? It sounds really like, whoo, it's just lovely. It's just you do you and I'll do me and God loves us all. It's not the gospel. It's dangerous. It's deadly. Don't believe it. People will say things like, everyone will get there in the end. God will save everyone because he's too loving not to. Like, you know, he's, he's merciful. Everyone will get there in the end. And so the decision made to accept him or reject him now is, is irrelevant because he's, he's just too loving not to. 
It sounds lovely, but it's not the truth. It's not the gospel. It's deception, and it's deadly. People say, there are loads of roads to heaven. Jesus is just one way. It's just one path. It's like Oprah. She's famous for talking about the, that. Like, you have your path. They've got their path. We all get up the hill in the end. Sounds lovely, but it's rubbish. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was exclusive in his claim. And the church needs elders who can and will guard against false teaching, who will remind people of the truth. We could go on, but we need to stop. In some, a healthy church needs healthy leaders. But we've all got a part to play in it. So remember, elders aren't super Christians or a unique breed. We want everyone to grow into this kind of maturity in the faith. Everything I've talked about today as a qualification for eldership, other than that he's apt to teach, is a qualification for you. We want everyone to grow into this kind of maturity. So I want you to consider. We're going to sing one final song, Phil. I wonder whether you could come up to lead us. And as we do, I want you to consider, where, where does that list? Maybe read it again in your Bible. Where does it rub for you? Is there a way, perhaps, in which you've begun to believe a false gospel? Are you still looking for something other than Christ to make you righteous? Have you begun to believe that your works somehow add to God's acceptance of you? Are you trying to earn your salvation outside in? I want to encourage you as we sing this song to come and find grace again today, to come and remember and celebrate the fact that it's what Christ has done on your behalf, what he's done for you first and foremost. Delight in the freedom that he's won for you. If you want someone to pray with you, maybe grab someone who you know, who's near you as we sing this song. And if there's something that you think, hey, do you know, I've begun to believe that. And I need to come back today. Or maybe there's an area of sin in your life that you just know, and I've consistently stuffed in that area. Men, maybe as we talked about it, you know that you're more like a Zeus than a Jesus in the way you treat those around you. You've been in this for what you can get out rather than how you can love and serve. You, you, You treat your wife more like a mummy than your wife, how she can provide for you and care for you and serve you rather than how you can create an environment where she is secure and where she can grow and flourish. If that's you, I want to encourage you, don't go without putting that right today. Pray. Ask God to forgive you. Ask him to break your heart for those around you. Ask him to help you to love As you've been loved by him, ask him to help you to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5, husbands, that's your call. That's what you're supposed to do. You love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial, it's costly, but it creates a home, it creates a church in which people really, really flourish. Don't go without dealing with that today. Let's stand together, shall we?